Our Father, as we come to your word today, we pray that you would give us a deeper glimpse at your glory, Lord. May we behold your goodness. May we behold your loving kindness toward those who would trust in your Son. Give us clarity of mind, and may this affect our lives and change our hearts for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we're going to be continuing with our study in the book of Genesis today. If you have a Bible with you, or if you need to turn your Bible on, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 2. That might be on page 2 of the Bibles in the foyer. Let me take a quick look. Page uh, let's see, the Old Testament. Yeah, it's on page two. We've made it all the way to page two in a month. So, <laughs> so we're going to be continuing with our study in the book of Genesis. Last week, we covered the second half of the days of creation, the last three days of creation from the first chapter of Genesis, which culminated with God creating humanity. We saw that God creating humanity was the pinnacle of creation. We saw that the primary purpose for which man was made, and that is, of course, to bear the image of God. To bear the image of God. We saw that to bear the image of God means to reflect his righteousness, to reflect his holiness, to reflect his goodness, and to act in obedience with his sovereign authority. That's what it means to bear the image of God. And by doing those things, we bring glory to God. This is what man was created to do. This is what we find in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Humanity, we saw, also has the purpose. We were blessed by God with the responsibility of being fruitful and multiplying. This is what we find in chapter 1, verse 28. This was a specific instruction, a specific purpose that was given by God to man As a means to this end, God gave males and females complementary sexual organs in order to to follow this instruction. And thirdly, man was to subdue the land and to have dominion over the animal kingdom. We saw that we are not part of the animal kingdom. Rather, we are to have dominion over it. That's the way God designed in the beginning. And of course, public schools and uh, modern science will tell us that we are part of the animal kingdom, but this is where we have to say Scripture gets priority over science. And this is what we saw in chapter 1, verse 28 again. So all three of these purposes were given to mankind in the beginning. When God saw that the earth and all of the created order was not just good, but we saw that he said that it is very good or was very good in uh, chapter 1 verse 31, it was very good because it was perfect. And it was perfect because everything was functioning, everything was working as God had designed and intended it to be. And we saw that things are good when they function only when they function in accordance with the functional purpose that God intended. It's good in the context for which God designed a thing to be good. 
So today we're going to take a closer look at what transpired on the sixth day of creation. And you might uh, be looking up here and see that we're covering verses 8 to 17 today. And you might think, wait a minute, we're kind of skipping ahead here, right? What, what happened to chapter 2, verses 1 to 3? And we're not skipping them. Rather, we're covering the creation of the earth and all of creation chronologically. We're covering it chronologically. As I've noted before, there are really three creation accounts. There's chapter 1, verse 1, that tells us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's, that's kind of a summary statement of what we're going to see as the second creation account takes place in the first chapter, and there's a third one in chapter 2. And so with that said, uh, each one is becoming more and more detailed. So what we're doing is we are kind of skipping ahead in, in a sense, in the sense that we're looking at the part that zooms in on what we saw before. So with all that said, uh, what we're going to see in chapter 2, verses 8 to 17, is actually chronologically prior to chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. We're going to take a closer look at day 6 of creation. Now, modern scholarship uh, will tell you that uh, this, is all, this has all been revised. They'll take a look at these three creation accounts, and they come to the conclusion that, well, it must have been edited Somebody decided that there must that there, there needs to be more details. You know, some will argue that there was initially maybe just the summary statement of creation that we find in chapter one, verse one. But then somewhere down the road, some Jewish scribe came across it and said, "You know, that's really not enough. Let me let me make up a story that's going to go along with this." And so he added, you know, chapter one, basically what we see in chapter one. Another scribe comes along down the line and says, "Well, that's not really detailed enough. Let me add chapter two. That is nonsense. That is absolute nonsense. The only reason anyone ever offered this, that, that theory traces back to the mid-19th century, uh, back before the, the archaeological boom of the 20th century, uh, where we discovered that that's, that's how uh, ancient Eastern narrative worked. The, the person telling a narrative, giving a narrative, historical or otherwise, would give kind of a summary statement, then they would give a story, and then they would go over the story again a third time, or more, they may keep going, giving more and more detail each time they go through it. And that's exactly what we see in the book of Genesis. And with this knowledge, in fact, of how uh, narrative worked in the ancient world, we would have reason to be suspicious if that's not what we saw in the book of Genesis. Instead, what we see is that, yeah, okay, archaeology is kind of catching up now. They've, they've figured it out. Uh, this was not edited. This is how it was originally written by Moses. So we saw that God has created man. We looked at chapter 2, verse 7, which is the close-up account of humanity's creation, of man's creation, which told us that the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. And of course, we know that this man's name was Adam. We're going to see his name in verse 20 of chapter 2, and then we're going to see it throughout Scripture from there on. I want to remind us, before we keep going, that one of the fundamental principles that I've tried to emphasize in this study, and this is such an important principle, is that we must not read Scripture through the lens of science. 
We must not read Scripture through the lens of science. That is, science does not dictate how we understand Scripture. Scripture has priority over science. A friend of mine went down to the Grand Canyon this past week, and he went on a a creation tour in which he was taught how the geology of the earth validates Genesis. And while I appreciate what this young earth creation ministry was trying to do in teaching that the geology of the earth validates what we read in Genesis, the truth is they've got it backwards. They've got it backwards. It's, it's the other way around. A geological theory, if it's to be affirmed as true, must line up with what Scripture tells us. Geology doesn't inform our understanding of Genesis or any other part of Scripture. Rather, our understanding of Genesis or, or Scripture must inform our understanding of geology. Horrible theology. Horrible theology is the result of giving science priority over Scripture. And so we have to be careful when we're reading Scripture and we're, we're looking at the scientific evidence. We have to be careful to make sure that we're giving Scripture priority over science. Science will catch up. Don't worry. They, they will. True science will always catch up to Scripture. There's a story of a man who retired in the city and he finally had enough time to sit down and look out his front window every day. For years he had lived in this house, but he'd worked a full-time job for 50 years, and he'd never actually taken the time to slow down and sit down and enjoy the scenery out in his front window. And as he finally had an abundance of time, he noticed that across from his house was this vacant lot that once upon a time wasn't too bad, but it had grown cluttered. It it was worn down and it was ugly. And so one day he contacted the owner of the lot asking for permission to plant a garden there. And the man spent weeks hauling away garbage, weeks hauling away clutter and all that had accumulated in this lot over the years. But the man worked hard to clear the lot. And then he worked hard to prepare the soil. And then he was ready to begin planting a garden. And within a few months, the lot started growing beautiful plants, beautiful flowers and trees and fruit and vegetables. People in the neighborhood couldn't help but notice it was a remarkable improvement. And one day as the man was out watering the garden, somebody walked by and said, God has certainly given you a beautiful garden. And he responded by saying, yes, he has, but we can only imagine how much more beautiful this lot was when God had it all to himself. And I can't think of a place where we we should keep this in mind more than here in Washington. We've got beautiful scenery. Yesterday we were driving down by the sound and there was just this beautiful overlook over the sound. And I was like, wow, this is as good as it gets, right? No, it's not. No, it's not. Once upon a time, all this stuff that we consider beauty was far more beautiful than what we see now. The God who has ordained all things has ordained the end, a beautiful garden. But he has also ordained the means to the end, someone to do the work. Now we're going to continue looking at day six of creation with God creating a beautiful garden, starting with verse eight in chapter two. 
we read, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So what we see here is that God created a man from the dust of the earth. That's what we saw in the previous verse, verse 7. He breathed the breath of life into him, giving him a conscience, giving him awareness, giving him the responsibility to bear the very image of God. And we see that God placed Adam into a very specific context, a garden, which was in a place named Eden. Where was Eden? Man, there's a question for you. Where was Eden? Eden was in the east. That's all it says. It was in the east. And the logical question that we would ask is, east of what? Yeah, the most likely answer seems to be that it would have been east of where Moses was when he wrote this. He was in the region around Sinai, so it seems most likely that it was somewhere east of Sinai. But it's very interesting to look at how people have speculated over the years as to where Eden might be. But the truth is, there are no clear-cut answers. We really have no idea where it may have been. The word Eden means delight. And the Greek translation of this verse translates this word garden with the word that translates to paradise. So the idea is that this image of this garden is delightful. It's majestic. It is an image of paradise. Now verse 9 is going to give us just a a brief glimpse of this garden in Eden. Verse 9 says, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And isn't that interesting? God creates a garden, a beautiful garden, a delightful garden in the land of Eden. And this garden was filled with beautiful trees and vegetation which produced delicious and beautiful and healthy food. Everything that Adam could have possibly needed for his physical well-being could be found in this one garden. And right in the middle of this garden, which was who knows how big, we have no idea how big it is, possibly humongous. In the middle of this garden, you could find a pair of trees. One is referred to as the tree of life. And the other is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Hebrew is worded in such a way that this could also be translated the tree of good and evil knowledge. These trees were planted side by side so that you couldn't be so hungry that you could come up with the excuse, well, you know, I, I couldn't get to the, to the other trees. I, I had to pick the tree from the, the, the fruit from the tree of good and evil knowledge. You couldn't come up with that excuse. These trees were positioned right next to each other in the midst of this garden. And through these two trees, we find that the destiny of humanity would be decided. On the one hand was the tree of life, which would result in everlasting life. After the fall, God would say that he had to prevent Adam from returning to the Garden of Eden, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. On the other hand, right beside it, the tree of good and evil knowledge 
which would cause death, as we'll see shortly. Moses continues telling us more about this garden in Eden in the verses that follow. Verses 10 to 14. He says, A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, when we read this with our scientific minds, our, our minds that are always inquiring scientifically, what's our temptation? Our temptation is to say, huh, I wonder if I could figure out where this place is based on these four rivers. I wonder if this information is given to help us figure out where Eden was. That is not the purpose of this passage. That is not the purpose of this passage at all. For one thing, the geology of the earth was changed drastically in the flood. And Moses is writing this long, long after the flood. The thing that makes this difficult to understand for the modern scientifically minded reader is that we don't know anything, or or at least we know very, very, very little about the Pishon or Gihon rivers. Those are no longer around. We have really not a lot of good ideas about where those might have been. We know where the Tigris is. We know where the Euphrates is. Those rivers are still around today. No problem. But all we're left to do with these two unknown rivers is speculate. So the next question that we might ask ourselves is, well, why is it even in the text then? What's the point of even including it in the Bible if, if it's not to help us find where this place is? Look at verse 10 with me. Where does it tell us that these four rivers flowed from? They flowed from a source that started in Eden. The point is that the river in Eden was the place where God dwelled and where God walked with man. And that's where one would find the source of life-giving water for the entire earth, for all the land of the earth. In the ancient world, water was as necessary for life as it is today. And if you live out in a place in the wilderness, you know you must have fresh water regularly. And I'm sure that the Israelites realized this very clearly as they wandered about in the wilderness for 40 years when this was all written. And so the point here is that there was an abundant abundant life. There was an, a source of abundant life and provision for every living thing on earth that flowed from Eden. It's difficult to imagine a water spring, which is apparently what this is, that can produce enough water to create four enormous rivers. But it is God himself who is the supernatural fount of life here. Moses continues telling us about Adam. Verse 15. He says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. 
Now, I'm just going to pause here for a moment to reflect on this, because I don't know about you, but usually when I think of paradise, I'm not thinking about working. I'm really not thinking about gardening. I'm not much of a gardener. I, I don't really enjoy being out under the hot sun and, you know, ha, you know, without any hair. Believe me, it goes red quick. It, I, I burn really, really fast. So I don't really like doing a whole lot of gardening. And it's hard to imagine that in paradise, yeah, he's assigned Adam work. And yet, what we see here is that is part of Adam's purpose. That's part of his God-given purpose. But we have to understand that the Hebrew terms that get translated as work and keep are, as one commentator notes, quote, most frequently encountered in discussions of human service to God rather than descriptions of agricultural tasks, end quote. So man's work, the task, the work, the labor that God assigns to man is intended to be an act of service unto God. It's intended to be an act of worship. How many of you have thought of your work in that way? How many of you, when you think of your job, when you think of clocking in and clocking out, how many of you think of that as an act of worship, what goes on at work as an act of worship? God intended for every aspect of life to be an act of worship. And let's face it, work is part of life. Work is part of life, and every aspect of life is intended to be an act of service unto God. The word that gets translated here as put carries the implication of rest. It's the same Hebrew word that we'll find in chapter 8, verse 4, where we read, and in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. That's the word that gets translated as put here. So the idea is that rather than being toilsome or exhausting or monotonous or straining, Adam's work in the garden was designed, was intended to be an act of rest. We've seen that God has created order on the earth. He's created order in the universe. But the point here is that man is designed, man is intended to join with God in creating and preserving order on the earth. We're given the purpose of participating in God's work of preserving the goodness of the order and the function that God created in the beginning. As we continue, we'll see that God will now make a covenant with Adam. Verses 16 and 17. We read, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. What is a covenant? A covenant is a binding set of conditions or regulations which are established between two or more parties which governs the relationship. And so God gives Adam a very specific command here. 
a very specific command. And the point is that even though Adam has been created in the image of God, God is still the one who makes the terms of the covenant, of the relationship. God is the one who establishes how things should be ordered. God is the one who assigns purpose and function to every aspect of his creation. God is the one who has the sovereign right, the sovereign authority, to set boundaries, moral and otherwise, for his creation. He doesn't need Adam's approval. He doesn't take a second to say, hey, Adam, how do you feel about that? You know, does that work for you, Adam? He doesn't need to consult with Adam. He didn't ask Adam if the terms and conditions were acceptable to him. He doesn't even seek feedback from Adam. God works all things according to the counsel of his own will. And it wouldn't matter, it wouldn't matter one bit if the whole human race were to disagree with him. God is the one who sets the rules. This isn't an opinion poll. God's decisions aren't based on majority consensus. God alone sets the rules. God alone sets the terms of the covenant, regardless of how Adam might feel about it. God has given Adam great privilege in bearing his image, but with great privilege comes great responsibility. And Adam is given the same responsibility that actually you and I are given to obey. To obey what God has commanded in his order. In Adam's case, obedience to this command would ensure that Adam would remain in steadfast fellowship with God. The just punishment for disobedience is death. And that's what God says will happen if he disobeys. As Paul would write in Romans, the wage of sin is death. Here's that principle applied. If you disobey, Adam, on that day you will surely die. For the person who disobeys God, that's sin. The only thing that they deserve is death. That's what God has determined. And it really doesn't matter one little bit what we might feel about that. And if we feel that it's unjust, all that shows is that you and I don't know what justice truly is. Now, we already know that there's a tree of life planted right next to the tree of good and evil knowledge, right? We've already seen that. It's a tree that gives everlasting life. But isn't it interesting that Adam apparently is never even tempted to eat from that tree. He never is said to have faced the temptation to go up to the tree of life and eat from it. We know that he's going to eat from the tree of good and evil knowledge. But there's never in all of Scripture a mention that he was tempted to eat from the tree of life. And if you're wondering why not, maybe the answer is because he already had eternal life. He already had everlasting life. He wasn't going to die unless, unless he disobeyed God. So the question that we might ask is, what could possibly be so bad about this tree 
of good and evil knowledge. What is possibly so wrong with eating from this tree? And the answer is pretty simple. It's pretty forthright. Nothing, nothing is wrong with eating from this tree. Rather, it's a morally neutral command. That is, there's nothing inherently bad about eating from a tree, right? I think we'd all agree with that. He doesn't, say, he doesn't give them the command, you know, you, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not... Those are moral commands. This is a morally neutral command. So why is the tree off limits? Why is eating from this tree bad? Because God said it's off limits. Period. That's it. God said don't eat from it and you'll die if you disobey, and that's it. That's why it was wrong, morally wrong, to eat from it. God said not to do it. Adam didn't need to eat from that tree. There were plenty of other trees around. There was plenty of other sustenance in the garden. And the only reason, therefore, that Adam would choose freely to eat from this tree is for the sake of defying God's sovereign command. God wanted Adam to love him. God wanted Adam to walk with him. But he wanted it to be a willful choice. He wanted his obedience, he wanted Adam's obedience to be willful. Did God have to plant a tree of good and evil knowledge in the garden? No, he didn't. He could have left Adam with no choice. But here we see that God wanted him to walk with him in willful obedience. And do I even have to say that the same still holds true for you and me today? God wants us to find our greatest delight in him and him alone. That's why the psalmist would write, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. That's from Psalm chapter 37 verse 4. Now, does that mean that if you delight in the Lord and you delight so much in the Lord that he's going to give you a big fat paycheck or the best house on the block or the nicest, newest car? Is that what that all means? No, because if those things are what you want, then you're delighting in those things and not in God. What it means is that if you delight yourself in the Lord, He will be more than happy to oblige your delight with more and more and more of himself. As much of himself as you or I could possibly desire. And here's the truth. Please listen very closely to this. Here's the truth about every single one of us to consider. None of us, not a single person in this room, not a single person outside of this room, delights in God as much as as we could, or as much as we should. Not a single one of us delights fully in God the way that we should. Let that sink in. Think about that. Let that sink in. Think about it. And as you do, pray, pray that God would grant you repentance and that you would, through the power of his Holy Spirit, delight more deeply in him than you ever have before. And when, you, when you'd get there, when you, when you get more delight, realize that you could still delight more and pray some more so that you would delight in him some more. And I'll do the same.
Adam faced the same temptation that you and I face every single day, every single moment of every single day, and that is to act as if God had not given a command to obey without seeking the counsel of his word. But Adam was different from you and me in the sense that he wasn't born with a sinful nature which would perpetually cause him to think of himself as the center of the universe and to act as if he were free to set his own moral boundaries. You and I have a fallen, we're born with a fallen nature. In Christ, we're given a new nature, but we're born with a fallen nature that perpetually causes us to think of ourselves as our own moral compass. You see, Adam and Eve would usurp God's sovereign role in being the one to determine what is good and where moral boundaries are to be set. And when they did, God was merciful to them. He was merciful to them. He prevented them from returning to eat from the tree of life. And you might wonder, how is that merciful? Because to do so, to go back into the garden in Eden and to eat from the tree would mean that they would live forever, that they would never die, and therefore they would be eternally separated from God. And God wanted to redeem man. And the only way for that to happen, the only way for God to reconcile sinful men to himself and to walk with him in intimate fellowship and have communion with him as he intended in the beginning was to put limits on the lengths of their lives. In contrast to Adam, God would provide a second and better Adam. The last Adam is what Paul calls him, referring to Jesus Christ. He would live in perfect harmony and obedience to the will of the Father, never for one second choosing disobedience and being sustained by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Life in the garden was indeed a picture of life in paradise. It's a picture of perfect harmony and perfect order with, between God and His creation. The story of humanity in the Bible begins with this Beautiful, beautiful garden. And yet, we know that it doesn't last long. The harmony between God and man will abruptly end in the very next chapter of the book. And yet, the story of humanity ends with the restoration of this perfect harmony between God and his people. As we get to Revelation chapter 21, we see that there is a new heaven and a new earth. And we see Jesus saying, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give freely from the spring of the water of life. Does that sound like something out of Genesis 2? It absolutely does. He continues, he says, the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. Then we see in Revelation chapter 22 where John says, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Where does all this imagery come from? 
We see it first in Genesis chapter 2. This is what we see when harmony existed between God and man. This is exactly what we saw in the Garden of Eden. So the story of humanity begins and ends in the garden where God dwells and where the river of everlasting life flows freely and abundantly for all to drink from. But there is a third garden that we find at the intersection of these two garden scenes, right in the middle between these two garden scenes, and that is the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus, the Son of God, himself fully God and fully man, wept and begged the Father to find another way to reconcile sinful men to God on the night before his crucifixion. And yet it's also where he prayed to the Father, not my will, Father, but yours. He surrendered himself fully to the perfect will of God, knowing that if man is to be redeemed, if man is to be reconciled to God, the sins of the redeemed must be transferred to him. They must be imputed to him. And the wrath of the Father against those sins had to be unleashed upon him as he bore those sins. And in exchange for our sin being transferred to him, His righteousness would be imputed to all who would repent and place saving faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, what we do with the commands of God is so important. It's everything. It is everything. It's life or death. We're tempted to do exactly what Adam did, to think of ourselves as being uninhibitedly autonomous to think of ourselves as moral authorities that don't need to act in obedience to our Maker. Tomorrow, our nation celebrates Independence Day, but we must break ourselves free of any and every notion of uninhibited independence in which we see ourselves as entirely dependent, not independent, but entirely dependent upon God. Our culture will tell us that nobody has the right to tell anyone what to do or what not to do or how to act. But the Word of God says to each of us in John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. God warned Adam of what would happen if Adam chose to disobey God. And we know what happened. Adam sinned. And in him all sinned. All of humanity would inherit his fallen nature. The only exception would be the last Adam, Jesus Christ. But Paul would write to the Romans saying this, Romans chapter 5, verse 17, talking about the contrast between Adam and Jesus, the first Adam and the last Adam. He said this, If because of one man's trespass, speaking of Adam, If, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Do you see the contrast? Will you turn from your sin today? It doesn't matter what sin you have committed. It doesn't matter what sin you might even be planning on doing later on today or tonight or tomorrow. The question is, will you willingly confess 
that you have disobeyed God? Will you believe that only Jesus can satisfy the wrath of God against your sin on your behalf? Will you believe that his work as your substitute was entirely sufficient? It was enough to cover every sin that you have ever committed. Then come. If your answer is yes, then come and receive the free gift of righteousness in Christ and be reconciled to God because there is no other way. There is no other way. Every other road leads to death. Every other road leads you away from God. Christ himself is the tree of life. So come and choose him. Let us walk with him as he intended us to walk with him as new creatures, people whose hearts have been made new and who are no longer obligated to obey our sinful desires, but who have been set free from the obligation to live our lives as slaves to sin, but who now through Christ Jesus can offer all of life, every aspect of our lives as an act of worship, an act of service unto God. And let us delight in God. And when we delight in God, let us delight more in God. Let us desire more of God. Let us strive to do nothing outside of the will of God. And let us be overwhelmed by his abundant goodness, his abundant mercy, and his abundant provision of grace through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And let us continue to grow in the very image of Christ as God intended from eternity past by walking in obedience to the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for making a way. Lord, we confess in the silence of our hearts that we have sinned against you, not only in our acts, but in our thoughts, in everything that we do apart from your grace, Lord. We confess to you that we have sinned. And we know that you are a just God, and we know that all we deserve is death. All we deserve, Lord, is separation from you. But in your great love, you sent your Son to shed his blood on a cross and to bear your wrath against our sin in order that we may be clothed in his righteousness. Lord, we confess that that's something that we never would have come up with on our own. It is your wisdom that could devise such a great, awesome plan to redeem us as sinners. So we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the mercy that was granted to us on the cross where the Son of God took our punishment and gave us his perfect righteousness so that we could walk with you, so that we could walk in obedience to you rather than being slaves to sin. Oh God, give us a desire for you and give us more of a desire for you.
Through your Spirit, Lord, convict us, wean us of our sin, and show us, Lord, that you are enough, that you can satisfy every longing. Teach us, Lord, to be a people who walk intimately with you and fellowship with you and who offer every aspect of our lives as an act of worship unto you. We know that on our own we could never do that, but through your Spirit, Lord, teach us that we may glorify you in Christ's name. Amen. So much this message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.